Welcome to the Occupy Freedom Podcast, where we're diving deep into all things kingdom. Your life is not a mistake. You were created for this moment in history to advance the kingdom and govern the earth from a heavenly perspective. Let's join our hosts, Justin and Rihanna Arfston. Well, 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 it's that time again. (laughs) It's that time to break forth the rhythm and the rhyme. (laughs) For another... Inside edition of... (laughs) The Occupy Freedom Podcast. We need some, like... We need some, like, background applause music or, or applause be... tracks or something. I bet they have those. I should, That's probably, I should look on here. Should you look, look it up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. We're glad you're here with us. Yeah. And uh, glad you decided to tune in for another one of our blabbing episodes. <laughs> Are you well, guys actually, getting this one's sick different. of us yet? Are you sick of us yet? <laughs> this one's different because it's not us blabbing the whole time. That's true. We've got a guest today. That's true. We've got a, an interview, and kind of an interview slash just conversation with mm-hmm. a good friend of ours, Ralph Barry. Ralph and his family live up in Nisawa mm-hmm. area, and with their six kids now, they just had another mm-hmm. little gal a few yeah. months ago. Ralph and Candy, gosh, we've known them for 15 plus years. We figured years. about 15 years. We met them yeah. at church mm-hmm. uh, in St. Cloud. We were both yeah. going to a church in St. Cloud at, at that time. And uh, what a sweet relationship that's been. I, I've learned so many things from Ralph, but um, one of the things that sticks out at me is in that time in our life, he we each had newer homes and we both had unfinished basements. So we mm-hmm. kind of made this gentleman's agreement that I'll help you with yours, you help me with mine kind of thing. <laughs> and um, honestly, it was, I mean, this was a lot of years ago. So it was really the first time that I realized I can have a, a, f- a friend with another guy, just the two of us, we can be productive, you know, pounding nails and hanging sheetrock and, and mm-hmm. all of that. And we had God conversations. Yeah. Um, and you never, you never sit with Ralph and not have never. God conversations. It's impossible. Period. It's impossible. Period. You just, you just don't do that. <laughs> it's absolutely impossible. One of the things he taught me, I, re- I remember him making a statement, and at the time I was like, well, I don't know if I agree with that, but <laughs> but uh, actually that happens a lot with Ralph. And then I sit and chew on it Probably and years later. Too. I'm sure most of our <laughs> listeners can say, yeah, I've said that about you guys a million times. I don't really agree with what you're saying. The difference is, is years later, I was like, you know what, I think Ralph was right. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, uh, but one of the things that, that he was talking about is, is, you know, I've heard the statement of, you know, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ralph is the polar opposite of that. He's like, who cares if you're earthly if you're not always yeah. focusing on heavenly kingdom yeah. things? Yeah. And I remember when he said, I was like, yeah, but you still have to live life and you yeah. still have to whatever. And that wasn't his point at all. His point was always seeing things from a kingdom perspective, right. no matter whether you're parenting you're working, you're mowing your lawn. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like yeah, Ralph, that kingdom central. Always, 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 always. I just appreciate that so much yeah. about Ralph. Ralph and Candy have always been such a voice and a heart of Christ. And I mean, yeah, there have, if you don't have relationships in your life that challenge you to the core, you need to get some. Mm-hmm. Because the way that you grow and mature in life is by having friendships that will challenge you to tears even. Because those are the moments when you think, 
I thought I had this all figured out, but now I'm not <laughs> so sure. And spilt the milk. Right? <laughs> and, and that's where we learn and grow, though, in that wrestling and in that that pliability of saying, man, what I thought I knew I don't know, or that was a great reference point for that season, and now God wants to take me deeper into something. And that can be a scary place where you have to risk and count the cost and lose it all just to find it all again. And a Ralph has just been that person in our life Absolutely. and Ralph and Candy. And so Ralph has actually also written a book. It's called Recapturing Eternity. Fantastic, insightful, prophetic viewpoint into what God is doing in the world today. And, uh, and so I would encourage you guys to go to Amazon and pick that up. Recapturing Eternity. Ralph Berry, his last name is just like the raspberry spelling, B-E-R-R-Y. And uh, look that up on Amazon. You're going to want to read that. Or strawberry. Or strawberry. Or, or blackberry. Or blueberry. Or blueberry. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so I'm actually going to read you his bio from the back of his book because <laughs> this you have is, to. But before yeah. she reads it, she has a preface that. So <laughs> yeah, because this is Ralph in a nutshell. This is how he wrote his bio, and this is what to expect. He's from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And he is about as real and authentic as it gets. And you are just going to walk away with, like, just loving the fact that he does not make one bit of excuse or apology for being who he is. And so his bio on the back of his book says this. It says, Ralph Berry is a misfit, ex-druggie, ex-convict, ex-inmate, and ex-reject whom the master found, stooped down to, and scraped off the bottom of a prison cell. Since his salvation in 1998, he has been his fool preaching the glorious gospel in churches, jails, and institutions around the country. Ralph has degrees in urban ministry and psychology, and he is a licensed alcohol and drug counselor in the state of Minnesota. He actually currently works with Teen Challenge and has for many, many years. His last eight years have been spent uh, counseling and bringing the hope of the gospel to drug addicts, alcoholics around the state of Minnesota, and he is happily married to his beautiful wife, Candy, who is a homemaker and a a homeschooler of their now six kids. You guys are really going to be blessed and challenged beautifully. He gives some great practical steps to to his thoughts and his perspectives as well. And I just really value and honor the Christ in him, and I hope that you guys too. Yeah, absolutely. And so you guys are going to be blessed. Amen. Let's get him on the bus. Well, welcome, Ralph, to the Occupy Freedom podcast. We are super grateful for you to be spending some of your time on Saturday morning with us. Um, We've always really valued our friendship with you and honor the Christ that is in you and all that God has put in you and that you've just been so gracious to share it. So we just thank you for being with us today. So maybe uh, for today, let's maybe start so that the listeners can uh, get to know a little bit about you. So if you want to share... Uh, again, a little bit about yourself, your family, um, ministry career, kind of what, what you're doing in this in this time. Hey, people, my name's Ralph. I'm kind of a, I'm a family man, CD counselor slash preacher, just all gobbled <laughs> up, into, gobbled up into, into one. I have six wonderful children. I'm happily, happily married, been working with drug addicts and alcoholics for probably the past the past 10 years. It's my passion to work with mis- the misfits, the disillusion. And um, how did that all how did that all start for, for me? You know, 
even thinking about the question of, you know, where I've come, where I've come through and what I've come through in life. And the best I could say is God was hunting me down, you know, yeah. as an absolute lost, blind, desperately wicked individual trying to find this way. So I'll share a little bit of my testimony. And so, like I said, the Lord was hunting me down. Those initial seeds of the gospel were planted in my heart, probably, I'm guessing around the age of 13, 14. But like a lot of people that age, I rebelled. By the time I had the strength to rebel, which was about 14 years old, that's that's what I did. You know, it landed me, it landed me in the throes of addiction, landed me in somebody's prison cell. But like I said, the faithfulness and the mercy of God, he was tracking, tracking me down the whole, yeah. the whole time. And I've never lost sight of the wonder and the mystery of that. Amen. And I went straight from prison into Bible college, graduated from a school who, that had a heartbeat for urban ministry. And that's kind of been my heartbeat as well, working with the disillusioned and the disenfranchised and the throwaways of society. That's mm. that's that's uh that's my passion uh, unto this day. Was in the, initially credentialed with the Assemblies of God, and as my theology began to grow and to prosper and to change in in, in different ways, it went went different routes. But yeah, amen. So amen. good. Mo most of the listeners here have probably heard of. Teen Challenge, which is who Ralph works for, and just a great organization, and mm -hmm. uh, someone that we, you know, we've supported and um, been tied into for multiple years. Just a, just a great group. So, yeah, Ralph, we're just so grateful that you know you've always been, like you said, you've always had such a heart for those disenfranchised and those who, who many would say we just throw them away because it's messy and it's toxic and it's hard and it's not they're not the easy ones to reach in, right? And you've always had such a great prophetic sense for the body of Christ and for the church. And I've always admired, um, honored that Christ in you that has been such a voice for the current day. And so what I am wondering right now for you is what are you sensing God doing in this current season with the body of Christ? Without, without hesitation, I would say the Lord is turning his church, turning their eyes back inward. And that's super essential in this season. For a long time, the Christian Christian church has been viewing themselves as just primarily an agent to an agent to do battle and to do war ex externally. But I think if you hear it, you hear it, I hear it in a lot of people that I run into, people are starting to ask the difficult questions of what exactly is the body of Christ? What exactly is the church? If I call you brother, what do I mean by that statement? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the Holy Spirit is leading many people to turn their eyes back to the old path because it's evidently, at least in my perception, it is evident that at some point we took a left where we should have kept straight. And so I think people, if you, if you hear I hear people all the time in their late 20s, mid 20s, earlier out in their faith are starting to really get off into church history. And they're starting to really come up with the perception that something is absent, something is evidently yes. mm -hmm. lacking, that our what we call church has not been sufficient to come up to the to the scriptures standard on what is 
what it is to be what it is to be a body. And I'm blessed because I have a couple a couple young soldiers around me, and I'm really starting to hear those seeds take root. And people are asking difficult questions, and there that there's no instant answer or solution for. Right. So, in a nutshell, I would say the Holy Spirit is turning His eyes back to the body of Christ in a way that's causing each and every individual who is sensitive to his spirit to wrestle because there's a scripture and it's one of my favorite scriptures. It says, contend for the faith that was once and for all handed down for all the saints. Mm. And so the question becomes, if we're not contending for the faith that was handed down, Mm. then what are we contending for? Yeah. Because you have to know which fate was handed down. And that's more than just rhetoric. That's more than just a word. There was a specific reality that was handed down. There was a torch that was handed down. And if we are not the bearers of that torch, if we allow that light to be diminished, then we find ourselves propagating and advancing a fate that is not the fate that was handed down, but right. another faith. Right. right. You would you would kind of mention, you know, brotherhood and family. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? Like what, you know, when when we, you know, we hear that, hey, you know, hey, brother, you know, my brother in Christ. And I think sometimes it gets used, in my opinion, a little flippantly. <laughs> um, like how what does that mean? Like, how would you define that if you'd unpack that a little bit for us? And and I would say right away that you're that you're absolutely right. We use the word. We use the word flippantly, way more flippantly than it would have been used amongst New Testament or early, early church Christians. And we know that. And I always challenge people. I say, what do you mean when you say, brother, what do you mean when you say church? Because we know definitively that Christ placed spiritual relationships on a higher plane than he did biological yes. ones. Yes. And one of the, I mean, you look at one of the last acts of Christ that we have recorded in the new Testament was to create, he created family. He's, he's literally in his last breaths. He's dying. He looks down, he looks down from that cross and says, John, behold thy mother, woman, behold thy son. And it says from that moment on, he took her in as his own mm. mother. So what it is to be a family, what it is to be a brother, the spirits, a spiritual brotherhood is of superior quality than the biological one. And so until your brother, who you call brother, in your church or your fellowship, until he has reached the quality of your actual real family, we are living beneath a New Testament reality. And we know mm -hmm. it. And I always tell people, I know you, I know it because. When you treat your own family, when you treat my, which when you would do for your biological family, what you would do for mine, you becoming closer to what mm. Christ entails when he says fellowship, yeah. what he says, when he says brother, as long as you got, and I always say this here, as long as you got a millionaire sitting next to a poor widow who's struggling to pay her electric bill at your church, you're living beneath the kingdom reality mm -hmm. because this woman is not your sister because what you do for your own sister, you're not doing for her. Yeah. So there is a quality there. There's a richness of what it is to be a body that we've, I don't, I don't think for the most part, I'm not sure we've ever truly grasped or understood. 
There's a reality when Christ said that we are body. Nobody says to the left hand, you know, I really like the left hand, but the right one, not so much. Nobody says, nobody says that because they have the same care one for another. And that's why there's a scripture that says, pray for those who are in bonds as if you yourself was bond mm -hmm. with them. Right. Yes. And one of the yes. first realities that I see develop in the Christian who's developing Christ-like maturity is that persecuted saint across the ocean is no longer just no longer just a uh, an image or a faceless mm. a faceless mm -hmm. uh, entity over there. The first thing a person does who's starting to reach that level of maturity in crisis, they care about that saint. Why? Because he truly is. He truly is their brother. And it's not just a, it's not just a prefer a preferential thing, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's when when we get to the other side, part of the way Christ will judge on that day of judgment at the grand consummation is how we treated his body. That's why he can say to those on the other side, you saw me thirsty. You didn't give me nothing to drink. You saw me hungry. You didn't give me anything to eat. You saw, you saw me in prison and did not visit me. And they'll say, Lord, when did we see you in prison? When did we see you hungry? Or when did we see you thirsty? It didn't give you anything to drink. And he'll plainly say to them, just like you didn't do for the least of these my brothers, you did not do it unto me. And the hard truth that I had to wrestle with, and I don't always like it. And the truth is no one loves God any more than they love his people. You cannot mm -hmm. love yes, the head yes. when say that you cannot despise the body and love the head. You cannot say, I really, really love your head and your body, not, not so much. He is left for us in the earth. God has yes. left for us in yeah. the earth through his people, a means of expressing our love and devotion towards yeah, him. Yes, yes. And that's the truth there, man. And I also wonder, you know, that is such a profound statement that, you know, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And his commands were very simple. You love God with all that you are, and then you love your neighbor the same. But I think some of this comes back to our distorted view of what love is and what it is not. And so, you know, the concept of laying your life down for a brother, it's not really the concept of love that I feel we engage in and talk about today. We talk a lot about ideals and DIY sort of independence of my life, your life, but not really a shared aspect of, I lay myself down in your need. If we're looking at this culturally, and I know this is kind of a, this is an impromptu question, but how do we reconcile? I know we're talking about the wrestling, right? Cause I know a lot of people are listening going, I see that I, I get that. And I even, I agree with what you're saying. <laughs> how do we reconcile current cultural mindset of love, independent love, right? I'm independent, but I still love you when it's convenient, when I have the time, when I have the resource and how do we begin to move toward, let's just say, because, you know, we don't have the answers to completely reconcile something in this moment, but how do we move, to, like, how do we even take a step to move toward that? I find a lot of people right now are asking the same question, and it's almost, you can feel almost paralyzed from the question itself, right? Yeah, because right. you see it, this grand question, you see it, 
this grand thing that the that Christ laid out in the scriptures when he said that they may be one, even as I and the Father, and it's just high premium. I think a big part of it is how do you allow the Holy Spirit to move and do his thing, right? Because mm-hmm. there's things mm-hmm. that we do and there's things that the Holy Spirit does. We got to do our part. But I think more so than the specifics, we all need to wrestle with these biblical truths and create the context for this type of body to actually exist. What do I mean yeah. by the context? Yeah. There's certain things that we there's there's certain things that we know definitively from the scripture that were necessary in order for the Holy Spirit to do the work of forging individual souls together as a body. And one of the things I, I know for sure was sacrifice, right? Christ laid down his life for us, so ought we also to lay down our lives for mm, the sake yes. of the, bo- the brotherhood. So that's not talking about the mere uh, taking the bullet. It might come down to that one day, but when it says laying down your life for the mm. sake of the brotherhood, that means your brother's pain becomes your own. That means yes. not looking at mm-hmm. the brother who is suffering in, in, in a, with an indifferent attitude as if, as this, as if he's... Not your, not your brother. When your mm. brother's pain becomes your own, you're creating the context for the Holy Spirit to forge those relationships. So I would yeah. say number one is sacrifice. Another absolute critical component is the issue of time. Now we have mm. to wrestle with the issue of time. The scripture says that in the, the scripture says that in the last days, right, as you see these days approaching, mm-hmm. you gather together all the more. So technically, if it was the last days 2,000 years ago, then what is it? What is it right now? <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. So if he's exactly. saying, as you see the days approaching, gather, gather them more, then technically we should be seeking to spend at the bare minimum as much time as the apostles did speak. Yeah. And we know that from the book of Acts, they spent a lot of time together. And for me, this was probably might be a little controversial for some people, but it's not for me at all. The issue of proximity. It's hard to have the first two that I mentioned, sacrifice and time without proximity. The -hmm. world is a massive place. An urban context is a massive place. A thousand components moving at the same time. People have to take care of kids. People have to take care of their families. People have to go pay their bills. And you can commute from anywhere, right? You could, you could drive an hour to go to work. You don't have to live anywhere. anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. But if, if you have, and we see this from the, we see this from the book of book of Acts, they were gathered together in one accord. They had the issue of proximity. It's easy to have access to a person that's your neighbor, right? It's easy to have access to a person that's your neighbor. And I can remember listening to a sermon, and I really thought about this. In the sermon, there's a guy there. There's a preacher I listened to sometimes. His name is Arthur Katz. And he was speaking on the same issues of brotherhood, of community, of fellowship, right? And as he's speaking on these issues, when he's done preaching, a gal walks up to him and says, well, well, pastor, I would love to have that degree of fellowship. I would love to have that degree of unity in the body, but I live, I live two hours away. And this, this pastor did not bat an eye. When she said that, he, ju- he did not bat an eye. He just looked her in the eyes. He said, well, move then. Mm. And so I always <laughs> question if a person is not willing to transition and even to move location, 
for the sake of people who they're in covenant relationship with or who they say they're in covenant relationship with, they're showing you what, where their values are at, right? Yeah. Because if we say we value this thing because Christ loved the body to die for the body, and yet we're not willing to even come into close proximity. That shows where our values lies. Right, so right. sacrifice, time, proximity, and also, I believe one of the most essential components is a common mission, because I've been studying and looking into brotherhood and fellowship and community probably for 13 or 13 or 14 years. I've been beating mm. this drum, preaching this same <laughs> message. Yeah. And one mm -hmm. of the failures, one of the failures of people who start to develop a body of people that actually treat each other as families, one of the detriments is that when they become so inward focused, they lose the issue of mission, a common yes. mission and having that new blood come in, having a, a, a lake with an, with an inlet and not turning in upon yourself. Because sure. throughout church history, you see groups who bore the torch of the testimony, but as they're walking, their focus shifts and they become inward mm. focused and surely about self-sustaining and it's the detriment. I heard a yeah. brother, I know a brother who lives in a, a community of believers who are close, who are close knit, who actually treat each other a family. It's about 120 of them. And I heard him preaching a message and I'll never forget the message, but he looked at these, this congregation of people. And he says, when we lose our sense of mission, we turn our eyes inward and we begin to eat one another, all mm. of that contention. Mm. And, and you know, it's true because right now, if heads were rolling for the faith, if there was Nazis or communists or anti-Christian sects kicking in those, the stuff that we fighting about today, we wouldn't be fighting about, right? Yeah, so true. The gospel mission, the mission of getting out there and being unified in spirit, but also being open to continue to allow that flow of, of babies to come in and be a part of that family and to grow and to be discipled. And that's the whole of the five, the minute, the fivefold ministry itself, it says the fivefold ministry was given for the perfecting of the saints to do the work of the ministry. Yeah. Right? right. So if yeah. I've, if I've changed, if I don't have that focus of, all right, I'm not training. We're not, we're not growing and training mere followers. We're training leaders who are going to self for, who are going to replicate that which was sown in their hearts. That's mm. fruitful. Mm -hmm. That's fruitful ministry. You have to have that inward, you have to have that inward flow because once you take on the mentality of it's just about me and my little crew and my little sect, mm. one, one thing that every cult has in common is that we're the ish, the idea that we're the only ones. We figured Christ it out. Said we got people who are not up this fold, right? We I mean it's yeah, that meant that issue is uh essential. So in a nutshell, those those are four things that I found most common. Sacrifice, the issue of spending time together. If time is difficult to have if you're not if you're hours away from that person. So I believe there should be a willingness to move in closer proximity to the people that you fellowship with mm. in the issue of having a common mission. And those are just some bare bones truths that creates a context that the Holy Spirit can begin to move and work on individuals and forge them together. Yeah. Amen. 
And, and even, you know, as you kind of first started, you talked about this, just being willing to wrestle with it, being willing to create a context for it, being willing to at least say, I, I hear what you're saying in this season, Lord, and I want to surrender to what you have for us. If we talk about kingdom culture itself and stop trying to fit the mold of the world's culture today and trying to figure out how we can fit church in that, but kind of spin it on its head, what would you say, how would you define kingdom culture itself? And how would you say that that might look in today's context? Start on that question by just telling you a story. When I was a, I was first a believer. I was probably two years into the faith. I just got, just had gotten uh, released from prison two years earlier. I was laying, and I'll never forget this. I was laying on the floor in the doorway of my mom's house reading the Bible, and as I'm sitting there reading it, I come across the scripture: "The kingdom of God." comes not by observation. Mm-hmm. And at the time yes. I was too immature to really understand what was going on in that passage, but I couldn't stop reading it. It's almost like the Holy Spirit was telling me, there's something here that you need to get. There's something here that you need to see. What does it mean? The kingdom of God does not come from observation. That means the kingdom is not something that's going to be you're going to suddenly see pop up later or in heaven or when you're dead. The kingdom of God is here now reigning in the parts of reigning into the hearts of believers. So one of the yeah. first things needs to happen to know that you are a citizen of another kingdom. You mm-hmm. are a pilgrim. There is a king. Like right now, we're living in America. America is a self-governing nation. America has a government. America has a president, has laws, has rules. We need to start thinking in the continent. When we talk about a kingdom, we need to start thinking in the kingdom, there are statutes. In the kingdom, there is a king. In the kingdom, they are real citizens. When the scripture says we're strangers and pilgrims just marching through when the scriptures say we're exile we're exile in the land when when Jesus was speaking before Pontius Pilate and he says if my kingdom was of this world then my citizens was fight I don't think we even have the perception of that right Mm -hmm. so I think one of the first things has to happen is to regain regain the consciousness of who we are as kingdom citizens and that's a difficult thing because everything around us has told us you're just an American. You're just a suburbanite. You're just a guy from the hood. You're just you're just a, a Republican or a Democrat, or you're just a Chinese, or you're just from the North, or you're just from the South. We've lost sight of who it is, what it means to be a kingdom citizen. So one of the first things mm-hmm. that has to happen, we have to recapture our identity, right? Because your identity, who you are, is going to is going to is going to affect why you do the things you do. Why did you move to that neighborhood? Why did you take that job and not this one? Right. Why did you marry this person and not that one? So how do you recapture a kingdom? How do you operate under kingdom statutes if you don't even view yourself as a kingdom citizen, mm-hmm. right? Because if I view myself as a kingdom citizen now, I live within a kingdom concept, the concept because I understand. Yes, that there is absolutely. a ruler. 
I understand Absolutely. that there are statues. I understand that this world is not my home. I mean, I always ask, I ask pastors sometimes, when is the last time you met a group of people that actually lived as if this world is not their home? Right. (laughs) And And didn't get triggered every time something in the world of their preference was on, you know, up for debate. You know, you look at social media and feel like it's just a feeding frenzy. As soon as I have an opinion on anything pertaining to the medical world, the economy, the government, social reform, like we latch straight onto it because it really is more of our reality than the kingdom is. And I see this even in the most intimate groups, you have to keep redirecting and saying, well, wait a second. Like if we're kingdom people, aren't we to, to what's our kingdom perspective in this? Is this something that we need to argue about? Is this something that I have to convince you to change your mind about? Or is this just a byproduct of being human and living in America? And like, is it worth being entangled in, you know? Right. And you, you, I mean, you see that within, especially after the elections this last year, I mean, what a perfect time. I mean, you see Christians on all sides and, you know, all this nationalism. And I mean, there's just so much of that stuff going on. And like, I, I want to just like publicly say, guys, time out, just a big old time out. And uh, are we entangling ourselves in all of these worldly things? And is that First of all, where's the mandate? Second of all, is that is that the jurisdiction? Is that what we're called to? Is that our current assignments to, to be entangling in, in, in these things? And there are people I do believe that are, you know, uh, uh, their assignment is in some sort of you know political realm, but not the majority of us, probably, you know, the vast minority of us. But but it seems as though that there are so many people that are so entangled and got their opinions and 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 start creating almost like their own theology around uh you know around what's happening here in the u.s and 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 again that that lens of well this is what god said about what's happening in the u.s like we are not the only people on the face of this earth you know and we just get so entangled and um you know i I always think of this vision of you know we have everything that's happening in the earth everything that's you know from jobs to political to all the things that are happening in the earth now. And we just find ourselves swimming in that and it's exhausting and it's, uh, but it's not where God wants us. God wants us from a kingdom standpoint to be up here uh, uh, at a different level from his vantage point. Mm-hmm. And it's and an distraction. See it. It's a distraction. It's, a distraction. Yeah. it's an absolutely calculated distraction. <laughs> right. Calculated. And- so true. Absolutely. And not only does that distraction come from a loss of an identity as a kingdom citizen, it also comes from we've lost sight of what the scripture actually says about the world, right? I mean, if you you could spend probably, you could spend the next few years just trying to wrap your head on what does John mean when he says, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We know that we are the people. Of, it starts out by yeah. saying, we know that we are the people of God, but the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Or, yeah. or, or why does the nations race? When the scripture speaks about nations, 
it's speaking of all nations, right? Mm -hmm. It's speaking of all, there are no theocracies in the earth. Right. There are no theocracies <laughs> in the earth. And when you lose sight that the world, at the end of the day, the nations of the world will persecute the children of God. Mm -hmm. All nations. If the book's right, which I believe the book's right, <laughs> all nations of the earth will rise up in open rebellion against God. So what does that tell me? Yes. That tells me I better be doggone sure where my allegiances lie, because I believe that they will come where every man's allegiance will be tested. And what yes. happens, yeah. right? If you don't know where your allegiance is at, what happens when your nation state requires you to do something that is against your allegiance as a kingdom citizen? Because mm -hmm. the kingdom, there are no dual citizens in the kingdom, right? right. In the kingdom, God doesn't play God doesn't play second fiddle to anyone, to any nation, to any race, to any religion. He's the ruler. He's the ruler of all. And to lose sight of that identity and to have your identification mixed up. But Apostle Paul at one point says, from this moment out, I choose to know no man after the flesh. Right. Yes. What was he saying? There's a lost. They're the, they're the saved. They're the people who dwell in darkness. And one of the things I find it's almost automatically you'll find people who begin to lose their identity as surely a kingdom citizen. They begin to advance the causes of individuals who are lost, blind, and not of the same kingdom. I don't care who you are. We're not on the same page. I don't, I, there's no pet cause that I will join in with the children of Satan. You will find yourself Look in a foxhole. If you mm. find yourself in a foxhole contending for some cause, and yeah. then you look next to you, and the people in that, that foxhole are not the people of God, yes. you're in the wrong foxhole. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. You're in the wrong foxhole. It's almost like the assignment becomes an idol over the calling on your life, which is a call to holiness, right? Our call to abide in Christ, our call to live centrally from the spirit. If the assignment overtakes your kingdom citizenship focus, then you are out of line. And, and because I know one of the arguments and the issues that we have when we have these conversations with people is like, well, but if God is calling me to, you know, steward in a government we do have friends who work in government. They're Christian, God-fearing, Holy Spirit-filled people who are influencing government systems for the people, for justice, for oppression, for all that. And, and that's great. So the question is always, well, if I'm called into that arena, you know, why is it wrong for me to advocate for justice and advocate for these things? But what I hear you saying is really when that assignment becomes your like you said, your, identity. your identity and your like, that's what I'm joining myself to. And that's what I'm, that's the hill I'm going to die on. Then you're in trouble because it will be tested. And if your allegiance lies with anything other than the kingdom itself. If your identity isn't wrapped up in the kingdom, if your identity is wrapped up into some other thing, some other cause, we could see this same dynamic play out in the lives of the apostles, specifically in the, in the life of uh, Peter, right? Peter said, 
Lord, all these other Trumps, they're going to deny me, but not me. Not me. <laughs> I'll never deny you, right? All the way to death under yourself. Yeah. A lot of people miss what's going on with Peter. See, Peter had an identification with an earthly kingdom. Peter was a zealot. Zealot was Zealots were kind of like nationalists, nationalists in a large sense, yeah. Jewish, Jewish nationalists, right? And mm -hmm. so what happens when your aspiration is let down? What happens when you find out that Christ didn't come to set up a kingdom in this world? What yes. happens when you find out that Christ is not going to create a present physical theocracy and make you the head and not make you the head and not the tail. <laughs> what happens? You become disillusioned. And a lot of people do not un, do not endure the disillusionment of having their expectation because Peter was at, Peter was absolutely right, right? He was willing to die for sure, but not as the lamb being led to the slaughter. Yes. Right? You could find a million. I tell, I was just having this conversation with a brother of mine about identity, who we are. You can find 50,000 men, I'm sure of it, who are willing to die, who are willing to fly over to some wall, maybe in Afghanistan or Iraq somewhere. And if you told those men that you might die, you're going to be outnumbered. So in all likelihood, you're probably not coming home. You're probably going to die. I'm sure, I'm certain you could find 50,000 men that are still willing to go under those circumstances as a lion in battle. But in the kingdom, he didn't call us to die as a lamb, as a lion in battle, but as a sheep being led oh to the my. slaughter. So even though you could find 50,000 men who are willing to die, for country, right? In Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever some war, you will be un you find it very difficult to find 50,000 men that will carry a Bible instead of a sword to mm. that same country. Why? Mm -hmm. Because in the kingdom, we say we love our enemies. Mm. If a man strikes us on the right cheek, we turn to him the left as well. In the kingdom, like Stephen, we say as we're being slaughtered, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hmm. And that understanding is absolutely essential because when you lose sight of who you are as a pilgrim and a stranger just passing through, you become manipulated by the powers that be, and you begin to advance causes that are not about the gospel, you know what? The, and I and I hear this accusation sometimes, and it's almost comical to me. When I speak on brotherhood, community, and advancing the kingdom of God, people say, "Well, Ralph, you can't just sit around and like preach and and pray and and do nothing, right?" And I always I slow them down and I say, "Look what you just said, right? You have said that." Your worldly weaponry, what you're using, is of superior quality than prayer, of superior quality than <laughs> preaching of the gospel, right? I don't care how much you, I don't care how much you fight in the secular realm. I don't care how much you vote. I don't care how much you administrate. Whatever you're gonna do those things, do so as a Christian, right? But none of those things can ever come into competition or ever come into the weapons of our warfare, they're not of superior quality. I'd right. rather a hundred men that prayed than a hundred that voted any day of the week. Yeah. Any day of the week. I'll take a otherwise, what are you saying? 
you're saying your weaponry in the physical realm is of superior quality than the weapons that Christ gave us to contend with, right? Because we got to remember with all of these other, other uh, contentions, other things we can fight with, this is nothing new under the sun. The apostles, the first believers, they lived under desperately wicked men, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. we have some wicked rulers for sure, but we don't have anybody that's turning Christians into candles and using them to light the city, right? Like Nero. Oh, come right? on, come on. We don't have anybody like that. Thank God I bless his name. You want to talk wickedness. Like that. Yeah. Like wickedness, but they still... Their primary goal and as missions were ambassadors to yes. the kingdom, yes. ambassadors to the kingdom, yes. bringing other citizens, call it causing men to defect from their citizenry in the world to the kingdom of God. That is our mission. And if your other ambitions overtake and overshadow that, you've lost yeah. sight of yeah. your kingdom identity. Absolutely. Wow. And 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 I think centrally, what what we're simply talking about here is eternity eternity we're talking about the difference between an eternal value on something and a temporal value and we're called to the eternal if you look around the world there are i mean america is so different than christians that are in remote places in persecution and really getting their heads chopped off and they're running into it they run into you know we we are a part of the voice of the martyrs um, organization and get their publications and their books. And I, it's heartbreaking, but all the more sobering and to understand that there are people who gladly run into the slaughtering for Christ because eternity is on their heart and right. everything they do is eternal. In America, we have this concept of middle-class Christianity where we don't actually have to be all the way hot or really admit that we can be cold and totally in the world, we can really be middle-class Christians where we can enjoy all the abundant provision of being in the land and being in our faith. And we can be full of joy and read the scriptures and pray together. But then at the end of the day, the eternal cost of something eternal in value, we really can say no to it and not be that affected by it. If you look at a Christian in, you know, someplace like communist China, if you're going to be a Christian there, you're going to either be hot or you better not be one because there is no, like, I'll be a Christian and enjoy the fruits of the land and Christianity at the same time. You're either all in on eternal things or you're not. And the progress that you make is in the eternal realm. And so, like you said, if you're, if you're going to use worldly weapons, you're not a you're not making any eternal progress. There's nothing eternal there. It's just very temporary. So if you spend your entire life fighting for temporary freedom and temporary rights and temporary justice and temporary economy and temporary, all of that, you eat the fruit of that temporarily. But then when eternity comes, there's nothing eternal of value. Yeah. Uh, we were having this conversation uh, the other day and through my profession, one of the things that I do is I, you know, I talk to people about, Hey, when you're no longer here physically from a monetary standpoint, you know, where do you want your money to go? Um, you know, uh, what the world calls that is, you know, what's, what's the legacy you're going to leave the financial legacy you're going to leave. And, and so we have some of these, you know, I have some of these conversations with, with my clients, but we were dialoguing, 
you know, like what is really legacy? And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I was kind of visualizing it as like a couple different levels of legacy. The first level of legacy is what monetary thing, your house, your investments or whatever. Yeah, yeah that, I guess that's a financial legacy that you leave for your kids. And then, and then some people say, well, yeah, but I want my legacy to be more than that. And so you see some of the greats out there. They've done some great things, you know, um, that have changed culture and, and inventions and all of these things that have bettered the world as a whole. And you say, wow, those people left a, a great legacy um, or, or even just great relationships. You know, hey, you had a, you had a great mom or dad and, and they were a great grandparent and all of those mm-hmm. things. It's like, wow, they really... They, they were just amazing people. But, but at the end of the day, all of that dies. It all passes away. The only thing that is a true legacy is eternal. So when we're, when we're thinking about, you know, leaving a legacy, it's, it, 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 we really need to be focused on how many more people are with us in glory mm-hmm. because we were here on earth. Yeah. Amen. Um, so, so I think, you know, in that, what, what, what should the goal of our fellowship be? If we're going to be on mission together. I heard um, a preacher, he's a men, he's, I consider him a mentor. He said a statement that it stuck in my head and it, it never left. He said, there's no greater adversary to that which is perfect than that which is merely good. The good will always be an adversary mm. to that which is perfect. So mm. going out on mission, walking in the walking in the in the earth, you'll always have a good thing that pops up. But the good thing should never replace replace the best. And how do you keep that focus? I think Justice said it best: eternity. No matter what I do in the earth, what I set my hands mm-hmm. to, I gotta ask, I gotta ask the same question over and over and over and over again. How does this impact eternity? You're just talking about uh, like the civil rights movements. It's better you stay a, it's better you stay a slave and enter into eternity mm. than it is to fight for your freedom in a way that compromises your identity in Christ. I am convinced of that. I am convinced in that. I'd rather lose. I'd rather lose than do anything that's going to compromise my identification with Christ. So if you're a lawyer, why are you a lawyer? If you're a lawyer, you are on assignment from God. I don't care what you are on the earth. If you're a politician, if you're a mechanic, if you're a lawyer, no matter what you are on the earth, if you if you if you a doctor, all of those things are only means to advance the kingdom of God. They are not your end all be all. No matter yeah. what you're yeah. doing in the earth, it's not your end all be all. You should always have the perception that you're looking to be used for God, because wherever you are in space, time, and history, the Holy Spirit indwells you, right? And the Holy Spirit don't waste time. Yes. The Holy Spirit don't waste time. The New Testament tells you to redeem the time for the days are evil, yes. right? Yes. So if it says redeem the time, the Holy Spirit, so while you're on the job, okay, you're a mechanic. Okay, that's that's good. Why did you become a mechanic? All right, what are you going to do with the proceeds of being a mechanic? You're a lawyer. Why did you become a lawyer? What are you going to do with the proceeds of becoming a lawyer? You're a dog. Whatever you are in the earth, the question must always arise in your heart. How does this impact 
eternity, that scripture in the New Testament, it says that we are ambassadors for Christ as if God himself was pleading through us, be reconciled to the world, be reconciled unto God. And so how do you maintain this? And one of my favorite sayings I say these days, it's, it's easy to wake up, but it's hard to stay awake. How do you maintain the perception that you're on assignment? How do you maintain the perception that you're not just a lawyer or a doctor, that you're there for the king? That's a difficult thing to do. And one of the things that I could admonish people that helps me the most is stay around people who are awake. The scripture constantly says, be awake, be vigilant, be vigilant, because the whole world is like men playing in the market, playing music in the marketplace. The whole world is calculated to rock you to sleep. Yes. Right. Yeah. So how do you stay awake? Like I tell people, my job is not my end all be all. Right. Because one at one point, at one point I was a baker. At another point, I sold cars. At another point, I worked at a metal fabrication place. At another point, I worked at a plastic injection molding type type place. And in all of these places, I lived my life predicated on the same principles. They used to call me Reverend at the bakery. Right. Why? <laughs> Hey, Albert, shut up. Here comes the reverend, right? Yeah, yeah. Why? Because I was on assignment yes. as a baker. I was on assignment yeah. as a working at a car salesman. Whatever you are in the earth, the perception that you are on assignment must be maintained or else you will succumb to the social pressures of that environment. Yes. yes. You will yes. succumb to the social pressures of that environment if you are not willing to bear the cross. I think a lot of times we know how to maintain, how to maintain the gospel in our lives. We know how to do it, but we also know there's a cost, right? Mm, there's yes. a cost of being a city on the hill. There's a mm-hmm. cost of being the light. And I don't think right now the church in this country is at a, a, such a weakened state. I don't mm. believe that most Christians could surely st- could stand up to the social pressures, even of their work environment. Yeah, right? I agree. Most people are not at a place where they could be a city on the hill. Why? Because there's a cost to being the weird kid on mm-hmm. the block. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, 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 you know, Tommy Zito said this on our interview, and it's so true, is because the we, the church, have spent so many decades teaching people how to live without death. There's no death. I mean, when we start feeling a little bit like I have to die to my flesh here, I have to die to acceptance. I have to die to um, people understanding me or being understood or um, being well-received. There's no death in life. So we just try to find ways to live, how to live um, in our current situation. When really, if we learn how to die quickly, die well and stay dead, there's such a rich life to be lived in your identity, in all of those functionalities, right? Every assignment that you have, what you're talking about, if I'm hearing you right, is it's a lifestyle. You're living the lifestyle of your citizenship, not just compartmentalizing it in church or in small group. It's who you are, right? If it's really your identity and it comes back, it it always comes back, embracing your identity as a pilgrim, right? And and I find like working at Teen Challenge, I find new, I find uh, new believers, and they're like, Ralph, can a can a Christian do this or can a can a Christian do that? And they're struggling. The issue that they're really struggling with 
his identity. And I tell people this here, look, I, I promise you, this might be hard to believe, but I promise you, I've never woken up a day in my life and, and looked in the mirror and said, today I'm going to go out and I'm going to try my hardest to be black. <laughs> I've never, <laughs> I've never did that. Why? Because I cannot help but be who, who I actually are. am. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. my faith goes far, far deeper than my race or nationality, right? If mm. you truly embrace your identification in Christ, that is not a part-time job. It's not something I do on Sunday or Wednesday, yep. right? I must fully embrace. I am a pilgrim. I am a stranger. I am just passing through the light. And absolutely, there is a cost to that. There is a cost. There may be a financial cost to that because you're unwilling to compromise your integrity in Christ. Mm. They have a social cost to that because you're unwilling to participate or to indulge in the same thing that your coworkers are participating yes. and yes. indulging in that. There's socioeconomic variables to that, right? Because yes. you're unwilling to do some of the things that certain uh, lines of work are you would be required to do. There is a yeah. cost. And there is, a, and that's one you talked about suffering. That's one thing I've been consciously aware of that prevents people from accepting their identification and 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 their identification is crisis. We have such little the we don't have a theology of suffering. Right. We don't have a theology of pain. We have a theology that tells us that God will God will somehow miraculously cause us to escape. God doesn't want people who are escape artists. He wants people who are overcomers in mm -hmm. spite, right? In spite. Yes. Lord, it's right. like one of the prayers of uh, one of the prayers of those Hebrew boys. Look, King, we don't even have to be careful in how we answer you. Our God can deliver us, but even if he don't, right? Even if he don't, we still not going to bow down and worship you. We have such little theology of pain. Mm. It's what makes us so judgmental. It's what makes us so critical of others. It's what makes us so ununderstanding because our theology has been lived out in these little Christian subcultures instead of in the pain. Christ in you, the hope of glory is able to sustain in the darkest of environments, right? Mm -hmm. We need to be amongst the broken, right? It's easy to say to the world, why don't you just change and stop being It's easy to say to somebody, why don't you stop doing drugs, right? right. That's easy right. to say, right? Jesus can deliver you of all things. How do you know? Jesus can it's easy to, to look back on the world and say, oh, the world is just polluted and the people are just evil. Have you tried befriending the gal who smokes cracks and keeps, keeps she's been selling her body for crack? Mm -hmm. Have you tried working with these people? We need a theology of suffering in order to yes. create in us a perception of our own insufficiency. Your theology can never be lived out in the bubble. It has to be lived out amongst real people, amongst the dead, amongst the dying, amongst the mm. wicked. It's like the apostles were considering all of this stuff. One of my favorite passages in the scripture, they say, to some, we are the aroma of life unto yes. life. Mm -hmm. To others, we are the aroma death. of death. <laughs> but feeling yes. the weight of that, the apostle cries out, he says, and who is sufficient for these things, right? Who is able to meet such a task? 
When you are faced and you are forced to allow your light to shine in darkness, you see how dark it is and you know that Christ is the only solution. Mm -hmm. We need a theology of suffering. I always said if I was ever the head of some denominational, if some denominational, uh, uh, some denomination in the country, one of the things every preacher would have to do, you'd have to go and live in the homeless mission for six months. Now mm -hmm. she would not be on credentialed about why? Because it's easy to, to look back upon people with judgment. But when you see some of what's going on and how people have been ravaged by sin and darkness, your heart cries out, just like the apostle, who yes. is sufficient with these things? We have to be robbed of our sense of self-sufficiency. Yeah. Yeah. There is no hope for the world. This ship is doggone sinking. Yeah. There is no hope for the world <laughs> apart from yes. Christ. And I'm not yes. sure we convinced of it. No, like we that's still true. think we have. We're trying to solution. save the world still. We are still trying to save the world, thinking we're going to reverse no and save it all. It, it is <laughs> and I it is falling note, away. Man, I was mm -hmm. looking at a gal. <clears throat> there's a gal I've known for over 20 years. I've known this gal. And she's stuck in the thralls of addiction. And I just ran into her after not seeing her for years and years. I ran into her. And my heart is just crying out. I want to share the gospel with her. But she's so ravaged. She's gotten worse. She's so ravaged by addiction. Her mind is gone. She's using these psych psychotropic medications just to keep her uh, tethered to reality. And I almost mm -hmm. felt just this spirit of just despair and just uh -huh. hopelessness because their mind is so cracked by the world and by trauma mm -hmm. and by sexual abuse and by drugs. And I find myself feeling hopeless and I'm looking at her and I'm like, what can I say to pierce the denseness of what's going on inside of this individual? And then at first I was feeling hopeless, but then I realized what I was seeing and feeling the Lord wanted me to see. He wanted mm -hmm. me to feel. He wanted me yeah. to cry out with the apostles who is sufficient for these things. If Christ doesn't, I don't have nothing I could do to yes. pierce the distance. Yep. If God does Christ not intervene, there's nothing we can do. And that is the compassion that Jesus was compelled with every single time he would heal or deliver. It would say he was moved with compassion, knowing that there was no hope for this individual in front of him without his touch, without his words, without his resurrection power. And that is kingdom life. That is walking around with kingdom life, knowing that you can't be afraid to touch the darkness and the, and the pain and the suffering. But like you said, I think a lot of it comes back to being afraid to go through our own process of pain and suffering Absolutely. and saying, I have to kill the flesh. I have to embrace the fact that there is wickedness here that has to be slaughtered. I have to pay the price. I have to die here on this cross of mine and allow God to process, take me through the suffering so that my compassion for another, when I cross their path, I know, I know you don't want to be where you are right now. And the compassion in me compels me to, to reach out my hand and allow the power of God, because that's it. That's the only thing that can save we can't save anybody. We are not saviors, but we can bring Christ in us, the hope of glory. We bring the kingdom at hand because our life is laid down. 
not just because we've simply consumed the benefits of the gospel for ourselves, and then we live middle-class Christianity, but because we take what we've been given and imparted to in our suffering, and then, like James says, we sympathize and extend that to another. How do we sustain that lifestyle? In fellowship. Finding people, the people of God who are in that place with you, like driving toward that mission, kingdom lifestyle, kingdom living. We have found over the years of our faith, many people have asked us, you know, in our, we're in our forties and they're like, how do you stay on fire in passionate pursuit of the Lord? How do you stay there? Um, because people do get fired up. Like you said, they get awake, they get fired up and then it just sort of fizzles out and staying awake is just really hard. You, but, but we can, without a doubt, Justin said this, just recently that it has been fellowship. It has been community. And that's looked different over the years, because if, if people kind of stop riding, then we have to find another people to ride with because we can't stop riding fellowship with the body is the key piece to continuing to run and continuing to ride. Absolutely. Something that's always been impressed upon me is the practical steps. A lot of times in the early out of my preaching, I would preach the truth, but people would still be left with the what now at the end of the at the end of it, right? They would yeah. have the conviction and they would still, but they would still be left with that what now. So this is such a a super critical issue in this season. I didn't want to leave it to the sharpness of my memory because I ain't got much of a memory. So I wrote a couple, I wrote a couple things, got a couple things in front of me, some practical admonitions that I would yes. like to uh, leave folks with. And I would say for uh, one of the, one of the things that I believe the Lord spoke to me in this season, I have about six practical admonitions is number one, study church history, specifically pre-Constantinian church, church history about relationships with other Christians. How did they interact with the outside world? Mm. Look at how how they uh, showed that they were citizens of another kingdom. Specifically, look at writings that have to do with the practicalities of life together. A good book, for example, would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes a book called Life Together. It's an excellent book talking about the practicalities of actually being a brotherhood. So I'd say, number one, study church history. Number two, I would say beyond teaching and preaching and Bible study, find ways of sharing life together. Increase in intimacy with like-minded believers. Start practicing this apart from regular programming, wherever you go to church at, whatever denomination you are part, part, you're part of, Beyond all of that, find ways to live and do life together and find ways to treat your brothers and sisters in Christ as if they're actually your brothers and sisters in real life, right? So example, maybe two days a week, decide to eat a meal, eat a meal together with some people. It don't have to be nothing fancy. It don't have to be nothing super theologic. Eat a meal with, just find a group of people that are on the same page, like-minded, decide one or, this is just an example, one or two days a week, eat a meal together and share on, share your heart with one another and begin to be real Mm, with one another. So So that's, so good. That's number two. 
Number three, I would say, turn your eyes back to the persecuted church. Look towards them and see how they have managed to survive in desperate social circumstances, but they survived anyway. Number yes. four, I would say, don't continue to labor and to fight with those who cannot see. And that's a contentious point, but I believe it, mm. the Lord spoke it to me. To do so, you'll waste a lot of your precious time. You can love people, but not everybody's going to walk with you on your journey. You can love so people good. deeply, but not everybody's going to be willing to walk the narrow path. So don't waste time contending with people who are dedicated to a lie. Mm. And number mm. five, begin cutting out unnecessary distractions because kingdom relationships takes time. And if you have a million things going around, a million different distractions, you'll find those distractions in contention with what God is calling you to do. Yeah. Oh, that's good. And, and finally, understand that some things that we esteem most as Americans are some of the very things that we'll have to die to in order mm -hmm. to advance the kingdom of God. Anonymity, yeah. independence, the American spirit. God has called us to be interdependent, interconnected, not independent. Mm -hmm. So those are a few practical admonitions. Those are, I mean, those are essential. I, I so, really appreciate that because I think so that- that really is, you know, part of, like you said, passing that torch of faith, right? Is it's great. We have to preach truth, but then there's this humanity in us that says, okay, now help me apply this to life. And so I think that that's so powerful that there are, and we'll, we'll uh, for those of you listening, we'll put those in the show notes and on our website as well, um, just so you can print it off and, and have that before you, because it's so important to know how to take that those steps and just wrestle with it, be willing to step into it and see where God takes you. So, so Ralph, if you would um, uh, end us in prayer today, we would appreciate sure. that. Amen. Well, Lord, we bless your name as you cause your Holy spirit to, to convict us, to move us forward, help us not to be weary yeah. and well doing, help us to remember that we are citizens, exiles in this land. We are foreigners, strangers, just passing through help that identification be above any identification of race nation nationality political identity help us to fall to first of all above everything be king uh, children sons citizens hmm. of that kingdom i pray that the word once more become flesh hmm. and dwell among men i pray once more that the word becomes flesh yeah. Lord, help us to remember that we're the only Christ that some of these people will ever see. Help mm -hmm. us to be lights in the city on the hill. Help us to wrestle with these deep issues of faith and what is it to be a body and what is it to call, call each other brother? What does it mean to call each other citizen? What does this, a pilgrim look like? Help us to be willing, Lord, to endure as good sons and daughters of the resurrection to endure your disciplines, to endure your transforming grace. 
I pray that this is just not another message. It's just not another interview, but I pray for the ears of those who hear these truths that are life-changing penetration from your spirit i pray lord because you knew when you prayed before the foundations of the earth you knew the things that would be asked the questions that would be stated you knew the answers that would be given and i pray that those answers are some way go into the hearts of everyone who will hear this interview let it go into their heart just as a little seed and it begins to spring yes. forth lord help us Yes. to have a hunger and a desire to continue to pursue you in all things yes. and forgive us lord where we've fallen short mm. forgive us where we've allowed the distractions of this earth lord help us to turn our eyes back to you yes, and not just as a flame that eventually flickers out but help us to stay awake it's easy to wake up but help us to stay awake day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, help us to remain awake in you. And I thank you for all that you consistently do for us in Jesus' yeah. name. Yeah. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining us this week on the Occupy Freedom Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, www.occupy-freedom.com and subscribe so you'll never miss a show or an update. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a rating on your preferred podcast platform. For further resources, check out Rihanna's best-selling book, Polished and Concealed, on Amazon.com. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Occupy Freedom Podcast.